Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We are now. Okay, we're recording. Uh, so you, just so I don't make any mistakes, you pronounce your name, is it Chofia? Is that how you say your first name? Jofia. Jofia. Okay. And you're, and you are, you're, you're in Hungary right now. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And we had, you know, we had uh, Chaba on uh, a while back and, you know, we had to go through a translator. So, so we'll yes. <laughs> thank you for, you know, being he's able to sending, do it. He's sending his re- greetings to you. Oh, we'll say bye back. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to meeting you uh, in a couple of weeks in Denver or in, or in Boulder rather. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so for people that don't know, uh, you are uh, part of the clinical and the research team in Hungary. That formerly was called Paleo Medicina Group, and now you guys have changed your name to something else. What is the name of it now? Uh, ICM and I currently, but uh, we are using both names. Okay. And you guys have been using a what we call a paleolithic ketogenic diet to, to treat just a host of uh, medical uh, issues and, and the results seem to be very good. And it's kind of similar because I'm, I'm out here in the U.S., you know, and everybody thinks I'm crazy because I'm promoting this carnivorous diet and I'm seeing a lot of people improve their health, which I guess you wouldn't be surprised by because you've, you've got the clinical experience. And, you know, when people ask me about the science about it, and, I, and, and I'm sort of saying, well, we do, haven't done a lot of strict research on meat-based diets, save for what was done in 1928 when they just you know, made sure no one died, you know, when they did that study with Stefanson. But you guys have put out some, some uh, clinical case reports in the literature and doing a lot of work around uh, gut permeability and that sort of stuff. Can you, for the people that don't know, can you just kind of briefly describe what the, uh, the diet is that you guys, you guys are promoting and some of the conditions you're treating with that? Mm-hmm. So the diet, the, the PKD, the ketogenic diet, it can be defined as a, a diet continuum and the diet continuum has two endpoints and at one end we have a full animal meat based fat diet uh, and on the other hand on the other end we have a diet that is allowing for a max 30% of uh, plant food which doesn't mean that we are recommending plant uh, for any reason it is just an allowance so this is the diet what we are using in patients uh, who have chronic conditions and, and depending on um, how severe the disease is or what type of disease uh, we are facing, we are sometimes more strict and, and, and sometimes we, uh, we are saying that the patient can do some allowance. So if we are facing a, a patient um, with a metastatic cancer, for example, or in a patient who underwent uh, several cycles of chemotherapy, uh, then there is no question that he or she will be needing uh, a full animal meat fat-based diet. And if we do have uh, a patient with hypothyroidism without complications, for example, or 
just a simple overweight patient, simple type 2 diabetes patient, then he or she may be doing well with a diet that is allowing for some vegetables and fruits. So Phil, where did you, uh, where did you sort of come across or where did that idea come from? Where, where, how did you guys decide on that? Or Because, you know, obviously it goes against the, the recommendations and nutritional norms, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, opposite of what we've always been told, you know, we hear that meat is bad for us, so on and so forth. I mean, of course I disagree with that, mm-hmm. but what, what propelled you guys to sort of adopt this sort of regimen? Mm-hmm. So uh, the whole idea is uh, coming from my colleague Chaba, Chaba Tot, uh, because he was the one, he, he developed <laughs> this type of diet. And, and, and farther back, the idea came from the, the Paleolithic uh, diet, um, as it was uh, originally uh, published in papers and books by Loren Corden. And of course, he also has his, uh, those people who came before him. So this is how it it just built on upon each other, and uh, I I also have a background in um, epilepsy. I've always been involved in clinical research. I did my PhD in the clinical field as well. And uh, um, if you are familiar with epilepsy, you are also familiar with the dietary approach of the ketogenic diet because epilepsy is the only field when where the ketogenic diet is accepted by the mainstream. It is also included in the guidelines. So it is not that far from the physicians within the epilepsy field. It is another question that they just not using it as a resource. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, I think it's from the 1920s they've been treating epilepsy with high fat ketogenic diets. Now let me, because I just, you know, I know Lauren Cardane's, you know, his paleolithic diet, you know, and 20 years ago, I had a, a friend when I was playing sports who was on that diet. He's one of the original researchers and worked with Lauren Cardane. And so I was kind of, you know, I thought it was interesting. I'd, I'd never paid much attention to it 20, 20 some years ago when I was, when I was playing sports. But my question kind of is, so, you know, where, how did, how did the decision to, to drop the plant foods come out? Because most people think that, you know, it's, it's, man, you got to have those, those phytonutrients in there. It's so important. And how did Chaba or you guys decide that, wait a minute, Let's maybe remove plant foods because that that would again that's very very controversial. It uh, just came with uh, the clinical experience. So first, Chaba started using the 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 popular so-called popular paleo diet, uh, which uh, included you know oil seeds, vegetables in unlimited amounts, and um, even artificial sweeteners or supplements. Um, and it turned out. Uh, very early that uh, this diet is not able to treat more severe conditions. So you may be okay with a paleo diet if you have a patient who is overweight, uh, who needs a control for blood glucose or hypertension. So these conditions can be handled with a simple paleo diet because decreasing the carbohydrate content, but this diet is simply uh, ineffective when it comes to an autoimmune condition, even the simplest autoimmune condition, because this type one diabetes, not even speaking about cancer. Yeah, that um, that seems to be what I'm seeing. There's a spectrum of people that you know that they can do okay on a on a more paleo or a low carb style approach. Some do better on a ketogenic diet, but when they go on to a fully you know meat and fat based diet, that seems to get the best results. Seems to be the most powerful tool as far as dietary tools are out there. 
Um, I want to talk, you know, because this is very controversial when you start talking about cancer. Uh, you guys are using cancer. You, uh, you guys are using this diet to treat cancer. Is that as an adjunct to chemotherapy and other, other things, or, or, or are you doing it independent of that? I mean, there's a lot of people that would, would, would not complain about you saying, I use it as an adjunct to standard of care. Is that mm -hmm. kind of how you guys use that? Uh, so actually, this is always the choice of the patient himself, herself. Uh, we just um, um, give the knowledge what we know about uh, standard cancer treatments, their, their uh, benefits and their risk. So we, what we used to do is to uh, show the patient uh, the, the survivor curves associated with certain cancer types, certain chemotherapy modalities. And when they are faced with such graphs, uh, they have a better understanding whether it makes sense to do the chemotherapy, the radiotherapy or not. Uh, but at the end, it is always the decision of the patient. But um, if you uh, look up our uh, published case studies um, with the cancer patients, uh, we do have a few, and these are all from patients who use the PKD as a standalone therapy. And, and uh, what I can tell you that we have best results for those patients who are using the PKD as a standalone therapy and who have not been using before radiotherapy and chemotherapy either. That's, that's going to be a very controversial, as you know, <laughs> uh, statement. I can, I can say that at the very least. But I mean, it's, it's, it's very uh, interesting that that's going on. Are you seeing any particular types of cancer that seem to be more uh, amenable to a dietary-based uh, uh, treatment protocol? Um, actually, there is no difference between um, cancer types. Uh, what I can tell you that there are certain cancer types where the size of the tumor um, can be decreased and uh, other cancer types uh, just uh, remain the same size. So for example, with brain cancer, we, we do experience that the cancer uh, remains stable. So um, if you come to the low carb conference, Denver, I will be presenting a poster uh, specifically aimed at cancer patients and specifically on successful cancer patients. And, and there will be a patient presented with a glioblastoma for more than two years follow up um, with a progression, a complete progression free survival uh, living without any symptoms for more than two years. And, and this is just something that just never happens with the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy because all standard therapies combined uh, on average result in no more than six months of survival on average. Yeah, that's uh, Jack, go ahead. I'll let you jump in here. I know I've been manipulating, no, <laughs> manipulating all... the conversation. I tell lots of many things I want to ask. Go ahead. Yeah, that's all very interesting stuff. And we're, we're excited to have you on. I know our Sabatooth interview was very popular. And even with the translation and, you know, some of the auditory type of uh, difficulties to kind of get through something like that with four people on the phone at once. But uh, uh, mm -hmm. one question I have for you is like, when you have a patient come into you, I and mean, my guess is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that most folks who are coming to you are coming in with some kind of pre-existing condition. They're not like healthy people or just super curious about like a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet. 
So when a patient comes to you, how do you determine if you're going to take an approach like with a strict meat-based diet versus more of a classical ketogenic diet or even a more loosely defined paleolithic diet? Um, I, I have to tell you that uh, currently most patients are coming from the carnivore society. So they are already following a diet that is containing no plant food at all. So uh, actually there is no question about uh, whether to include or reintroduce something uh, from the uh, plant world because they are already doing very good with, with eating no plant food at all. So usually this is not a question. So do you then have people who come to you and decide eventually, hey, I'd like to reintroduce some plant-based food, foods into the diet and they just start to experiment with that? Or is, it, is that just such a rare case you hardly even keep track? Every time this occurs. So if uh, somebody uh, is recovered, is producing a, a good laboratory blood work as a follow-up and, and um, recovered from symptoms and, and the whole disease, let's say, then the question arises sometimes whether I can introduce um, some vegetables and fruits. And then it is up to him or her to decide. I, I'm always saying uh, you can experiment with <laughs> reintroducing some plant food if you want, but uh, be prepared that there may be consequences. Yeah, oh, thanks for sharing. And you actually preempted my next question, which was blood work. Do you, when, you, when you're taking patients' blood work, do you find that folks following a kind of strict carnivore diet tend to still kind of fit within the frameworks of what we consider, you know, good blood work ranges? Uh, you know, one of the questions I usually come across is uh, like, we have all these blood, these values we're trying to get within, but those are more or less based on folks who are following what we call a standard American diet. So there could be some different defining metrics that we'd be looking at for someone following a, a meat-based diet. Is that something you're seeing or are you seeing kind of like when they do it right, they fit in these, these parameters quite nicely? Yes, we do see uh, a constellation of uh, a few parameters that are uh, out of the range in, in the uh, people who are eating a carnivore diet. And uh, yeah, interestingly enough, this can be normalized on the PKD. So when decreasing the food amount and then uh, uh, increasing the fat at the same time. So the, these uh, laboratory alterations include um, cholesterol level, as you may know, carbamide, uh, creatinine, PSH, and uric acid. So a constellation of these five is always elevated. And, and these are uh, indicating, just indicating uh, eating too much protein. So just a little bit less than optimal. And there are a few other parameters that are uh, I would say at the same level on both the carnivore diet and the PKD and can be regarded out of the range according to standards, but, uh, but uh, otherwise they are normally elevated or decreased. So Phil, what do you, what do you uh, think the mechanism is that's occurring? I know you've done a lot of work around gut permeability. Uh, what, what do you think is, is, is the pathophysiology that's occurring with, with, the, with an improper diet and how is the PKD diet different and, and, and what's going on you know, from, a, from a pathology standpoint, if we, if we know that? 
for the um, so intestinal permeability is, uh, so normally you have an intestine that has a dual function and one function is uh, absorbing and the other one is not absorbing everything. So you have to uh, balance out the two. And if you are eating something that you are not supposed to eat, that you are not evolutionary adapted to eat, then uh, it can result in an increase in intestinal permeability. The intestinal permeability is relying on uh, cell-to-cell junctions, connections, which are relying on cell junction structures like the tight junction. It is the number one, the major, the most well-known one. And if there is a compromise in the tight junctions, the, then the intestine or any other membranes within the body can become permeable. And if there is an increased intestinal permeability, then those food components uh, that you are not adapted to, proteins or polypeptides, polysaccharides may be absorbed, can get into the bloodstream and circulating in the bloodstream and then can attach to certain uh, tissues within your body and then the immune system is attacking uh, this complex. And if you go on with eating the same uh, bad uh, food stuff, then the autoimmune process will just be going on. What is, uh, you know, I know you guys looked at, uh, I think it's PEG 400 polyethylene glycol uh, as, as your main tool for assessing uh, uh, intestinal permeability. What, how are these foods that, were, that you say we are evolutionary not adapted to eat, what are those foods and, or, or supplements and how does that affect, you know, relatively these, these uh, tight junctions between the, the you know, intestinal uh, epithelial cells? Uh, we do not exactly know how tight junctions are affected uh, because we currently are not able to measure tight junctions. Uh, we can measure the intestinal permeability alone. And uh, actually anything outside animal fat, uh, meat and organ meats or, or eggs, is uh, potentially able to increase the intestinal permeability. And uh, there are a few vegetables that can be regarded as relatively safe. And these are the vegetables outside the nightshades and the legumes. So actually the non-paleo type vegetables that may contribute to a lesser extent to intestinal permeability. But uh, outside these vegetables and the meat uh, foods, actually anything like uh, milk and dairy, cereals, um, and um, additives in foods, and an and endless number of plant-derived components, including uh, medicines, pills, different supplements, alcohol, for example, many more. Where, um, you know, because this is kind of interesting because, you know, people say that, you know, we evolutionarily are primates and we diverge from a primate line where, where some of us, some ended up with, with you know, modern apes and, you know, uh, monkeys and well, probably apes more and chimpanzees. And, and their diet is very high in, uh, you know, vegetation, whether it's fruits, whether it's, you know, uh, leaves. And, and they don't seem to have these same intestinal permeability issues. Now, why, why is humans are we seeing that? Is there any thought on, on why that is? I mean, I know there's, there was a significant 
evolutionary adaptation to our gut? Do you think that was part of it? Yes, for sure. So all, all members of the Homo genus uh, that lived uh, in the Ice Age uh, have been eating uh, meat. <clears throat> so um, there is uh, anthropological evidence for this. So if you, if you look at the direct evidence uh, that is made up uh, from the, the isotope studies of the bones of the, of the teeth, uh, and um, the, the so-called coprolized fossilized feces, they, they all point uh, to the fact that the humans, human ancestors, have been eating meat and actually no plant food at all, maybe at all. So no wonder that we are still eating or we should still be eating meat because it was not that uh, far away. It was just 10,000 years ago. When so, the ice age finished. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to, I wanted to follow up on dairy. And uh, so for your group, you're just kind of like a hard no on dairy across the board. Is there, what is, what is kind of for our listeners, like what is the reasoning behind no dairy? Um, that there are several ones. <laughs> so we, we know that uh, uh, milk protein uh, is associated uh, with uh, different types of autoimmune diseases. We know this uh, from epidemiological data. So there is a, a quite strong association between uh, milk and dairy uh, consumption and the development of type 1 diabetes, multiple sclerosis. Uh, and we also see this um, reflected uh, on, on the level of the individual patients. So we, for, for example, see patients who developed type 1 diabetes um, shortly after starting uh, consuming uh, a milk uh, protein-based supplement for building muscles. And, and there are such cases in the literature as well. But there are, there are other problems with the milk as well. So one is the um, the lacto, the lacto, uh, lac, um, so the milk uh, sugar, <laughs> which we are not able to digest, and there is the casein, which is the most abundant protein in the milk. We are not able to break it down properly in our gut. Uh, we break it down to casomorphin, for example, which then may have uh, negative consequences on on uh, brain function. It has been uh, implicated in theories behind the development of autism, for example, or schizophrenia. So actually, the, the milk protein itself, which is the major issue with the milk. Sophia, how do you propose or, 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 or how would you guess that, uh, you know, we, we've got this leaky gut phenomenon going on and, and, and you know, there, there's a lot of evidence out there showing, tying that into uh, autoimmune diseases, you know, whether it's psoriasis or hypo, you know, thyroid, thyroid disease or, you know, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, things like that. But let's talk about, because I see a lot of mental health disorders that seem to improve on a similar diet. People's depression and anxiety seems to go away. Uh, we see uh, joint pain, you know, standard osteoarthritis, it seems to get better. Is that, you know, has that been your experience as well? And do you think that's, that also is related to this, this leaky gut phenomenon? Um, 
Yes. So uh, all autoimmune diseases can be tracked back to, to the normalization of, of the leaky gut. This is for sure. And, what is, there are, yeah? I was going to ask you a thing about time frames because, you know, we see that, you know, some of these disorders improve very quickly in some patients and yet others it seems to take longer, particularly those that have underlying, you know, frank gastrointestinal type problems like Crohn's disease, ulcer colitis, or irritable bowel syndrome. Are you seeing a similar sort of, uh, uh, you know, situation? Uh, yes, the Crohn's disease may take a longer time to normalize, uh, but um, actually all other diseases, autoimmune disease, I mean, autoimmune diseases like the, the rheumatoid arthritis, uh, recover very quickly within a few weeks or or much less. So usually uh, the the intestine recovers very quickly, and uh, what we ex ex expect to have a normal blood work already at three weeks after the diet onset, if everything is done correctly. If not, <laughs> a small detail is enough to derail the whole process. For example, taking one supplement or or, or taking uh, a drug which was not tapered down or not eating all of the meat. <laughs> what, um, uh, Shafia, what is the, um, uh, what was I going to ask? What is the, um, so, so I know you guys are, you guys have a somewhat of a calorically restricted diet. You know, it's, it's, it's a fairly high fat diet. You also include uh, some component of organ meat in there. And you guys, the type of meats, uh, pork, beef, I mean, talk, talk a little bit more details about the diet, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. So uh, the diet should be based on red meats uh, as compared to poultry or, or seafood or fish, uh, mainly because red meats are more nutritious not just in terms of the iron, which you can see by the color, but all other nutrients are more abundant in, in any red meat. And then uh, the fat to protein ratio is a next very important thing because with the diet, uh, we are aiming to achieve and maintain ketosis, a stable ketosis. And uh, if you are eating too much protein, not enough fat, then you will be still running your metabolism on um, glycolysis, so on carb actually carbohydrates because the protein will be converted to the glucose. And then you have to include organ meats because the nutrients will be coming from the organ meats in the first place. Yes, yeah, so, so with regard to organ meats, you th things like liver, brain, kidney, you know, yeah. thyroid, thymus rather. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly anything outside the gallbladder. <laughs> outside the gallbladder. What is the importance of, is, is the caloric restriction, the importance of that simply just to gear things more towards ketosis? Uh, you know, because this is something that I've seen in this carnivore community, that there are people that are still maintaining a level of ketosis despite relatively higher levels of protein. And, and you know, uh, so I just wonder, you know, if, if that's, you know, if it's if it's a certain level of ketosis you guys are looking for, or if, you know, with with a you know a beta hydroxybutyrate blood level versus 
you know, because the classic definition per Finian Bullock was 0 0.5, uh, was it milligrams per deciliter, I think, of beta-hydroxybutyrate. And, you know, that's considered, quote, unquote, nutritional ketosis. What numbers are you guys looking to hit? And then the other question I want to ask you, when you talk about lab markers or normalizing, what lab markers are you guys specifically looking at for particular diseases? Uh, okay, so uh, that was the first question. I, I wouldn't call this uh, calorie re restriction. Uh, I would uh, say, I would rather say to uh, exactly match your caloric needs. So you are not supposed to eat less calorie than you need. You, you, there is no need for starving. Um, it has no point, especially if you have an already existing disease and you are deficient in different nutrients because of the ongoing inflammation and everything. So starving is not a good idea, but uh, overeating is as well not a good idea because it can, have, uh, it can result in many negative consequences and alone overeating, overeating can prevent uh, a cure of certain diseases. So I can give you an example, for example, Crohn's disease. Uh, those patients who who are not able to cut down on the amount what you are what they are eating are not able to recover from Crohn's disease, and they are following all other rules of the PKD, just overeating, for example. So it is very crucial. And if we have a, a healthy person, he or she can overeat <laughs> uh, without having major problems. How do you define how do you define overeating? I mean, to me, I just tell people to eat to their appetite, and that usually, you know, like for me, if I want to try to gain muscle because I'm not sick, so I'm I'm still working about athletic performance, and I do, I eat past the point of satiety sometimes just in the effort to to, mm -hmm. to 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 achieve a little more muscle mass. But do you find that the, the the diet naturally regulates appetite pretty well? Many people that go on a carnivorous style diet do tend to find that. Is that what you're finding as well? Yes, uh, it should uh, naturally re regulate itself. Uh, but uh, so if you are following a carbohydrate-based diet, uh, then your uh, appetite or craving can deceive you. So maybe giving you um, a bad feedback. Okay, if, if you eat an apple, you want to eat the next apple and so on. And despite being, being overweight or having enough uh, energy. And uh, if you are eating uh, a meat-based diet, this can also be the case because you are not in ketosis. Uh, and you can, uh, if you are not eating enough fat, uh, then you will be, um, you will have a relative energy deficiency and you will be trying to compensate it with eating more meat and meat and meat. And uh, so the feedback is, then deceiving you again. Uh, but if you are eating enough fat from your diet, uh, then you will be a better regulation uh, of your hunger because the fat is, is very satiating and uh, you can have a very strict feedback <laughs> that you are already eating too much fat. You simply cannot overeat fat because you get nausea <laughs> after a certain amount of fat. Shofir, define for me adequate fat, because I like to eat, you know, I don't know what you guys call it in Hungary, we call it a ribeye steak, entrecote, 
in France might be. I mean, that, that for me has a fair decent amount of fat. It's probably, depending on the cut, maybe 70% by calorie fat. Is that somewhere in the realm of what you guys are looking for in your diet or is it even more fat than that? No, even more fat uh, than that is needed. So what we are suggesting to eat fat itself along with meat. And, and, and actually we have quite great sources uh, for fat intake in, in Hungary or in Central Europe, which are not that readily available in the US. So we have pork crackling uh, and, and, and many other stuff, which is just full of fat. So it, it, it is more uh, enculturated. So eating sausage or, or liverwurst or, or many other things that are already containing the fat and the protein in the right amount. So you do not have to think about where should I get the fat from. So you're looking at more around maybe 80% of your calories coming from fat. Is that, is that something that would be reasonable? Uh, yes, something like this. If we are speaking of grams, uh, then two grams uh, goes for two gram fat along with one gram protein. Yeah, so that's quite a bit of fat. I'm just trying to do a quick calculation. That's a two is 18, 18 to four. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's uh, think around you know, it. Yeah, that's that's quite a bit. Um, talk about. Let's talk a little bit about that. The uh, Peg 400 test you guys do. Um, I know. I remember uh, Chabate saying that something like 80 to 90 percent people walking around have intestinal permeability problems, even even healthy asymptomatic people. And you guys did some experiments with with that, and, and talk about how quickly the permeability can can be affected, and how quickly it can be restored based on uh, those tests. So, in in a healthy person, you can expect the permeability to normalize within three weeks, within three four weeks, or something like this. Um, maybe there are cases. Uh, which normalize in a in a much shorter time. We have already seen normalized intestinal permeability within a few days already, but usually we do see it normalized within three four weeks. And uh, more or less, it, it also uh, applies for for patients who do not have a Crohn's disease or any disease that is affecting the intestine itself. So if you had a rheumatoid arthritis patient that was free of intestinal problems, you would expect to see a normalization of their intestinal permeability within, within three, three or four weeks typically. Is that, is yes. that what you're saying? Okay. Yes. And then what about these people that do have, uh, you know, say because irritable bowel syndrome, uh, as we see, again, that's considered idiopathic. Do you think that's largely due to diet and uh, intestinal permeability because it's it's very common at least in the U.S. it's something like 15 maybe even up, we might even get close to 20 percent of our population seem to have that. Do you believe that's related to to this intestinal permeability issue? Yeah the intestinal permeability issue is a correlate uh, of this condition um, and yes I, I do believe that it is uh, 100 percent uh, diet related and there is no genetics behind as, as weird as it sounds. So people like to combine the genetic uh, uh, origin and the, and the environmental origin. But what we see that all patients who strictly follow the diet and um, there is evidence that they are following the diet based on the, the blood work, for example, so all, all of them will be recovering from an irritable bowel disease. 
Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Unamate by a brand named Unicity. This sponsor is unique. It has a personal story behind it. In 2015, I started using the tea Yerba Mate. I liked it for its calm sense of alertness that it provided versus kind of the more jittery alertness that you could get from uh, more traditional caffeine sources. I even used it in 2015 at the end of the year en route to breaking the 100-mile American record at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. The only hiccup that I have had with using Yerba Mate in training and racing has kind of been a logistical hiccup. It, I usually had to either kind of pre-make the Yerba Mate as like a hot tea or buy it in a can, which a lot of times the cans you would find had been sweetened with sugar and other things. Uh, so I was always kind of on the lookout of trying to maybe make that process a little more efficient. So after interviewing Dr. Ben Bickman for episode 13 of HPO, he had discovered that I was a fan of Yerba Mate in training and races, and uh, he's actually been studying some of the effects of Yerba Mate and connected me with a product called Unamate, which makes kind of an instant single-serving package of the tea. With, with these single-serving packs, I, I can easily kind of prepare on the fly, even during a race or during a training run, without having to go through all the kind of logistic steps of preparing the tea ahead of time or bringing a can full of something along with me. And I actually even used it at the Tunnel Hill 100 mile this last fall where I ran the, the fastest recorded 100 mile or on a trail as well as the fastest 100 mile or outright during the year for 2018. Um, so needless to say, I'm behind the product. If you'd like to try it out, please head over to unicity.com forward slash HPO that's U-N-I-C-I-T-Y dot com forward slash H-P-O to get $3 off a 7-pack or $10 off a 30-pack of Unamate. Thanks again. Now, back to the show. Shafir, let me ask you another question because we, we kind of touched on this before. You talked about people growing up in the Ice Age and, you know, my background I'm from somewhere in, you know, somewhere in Europe, Northern Europe, Germany, something like that. So undoubtedly, my ancestors from way back probably were, you know, doing that. But there are people that, you know, let's say, let's talk about people that are, say, African, of African ancestry. Is there some argument that, that there's a different tolerance to, to, to plants based on that? Are you finding that universally, uh, you know, plants can be negative uh, for everybody? I think that the the metabolism is the same for for all races, for all people from everywhere in the world. Because we are we are one species, so there is no reason to suppose uh, any metabolic, any basic metabolic uh, differences. So the core metabolic processes are always the same within the same species. So if we are, if we are thinking about the lion or the elephant, exactly the same. <laughs> And, and this also applies to humans. We are, we have, and actually, I, I do not know of any studies saying the opposite. So there are some genetic studies behind certain diseases, but uh, I, I do think that these studies are, are fundamentally flawed. flawed. What has been the, um, 
because obviously this is extremely controversial and I, and I kind of suspect I know what the answer is because the same thing's happened to me, but what has been the reception of your guys' clinic, your, your therapeutic approach uh, within your community, within, within you know, Europe in general, within Hungary? Has that been something that's been widely accepted or are you guys taking a lot of criticism for what you're doing? Uh, everything. <laughs> um, when, when I look back uh, to the last um, seven, eight years, uh, we encountered everything. <laughs> so, um, so the system uh, we are having now and have uh, have built is a completely. It is a system parallel to the to the mainstream uh, medicine, and actually there are no points that connect the two. So. Um, and, and due to this, there, there is not much communication between other physicians from other fields. Uh, and, and this is an advantage and it is a disadvantage at the same time. So um, if we have a patient, uh, for example, with a cancer disease, um, he can follow our way and we are providing uh, follow-ups, uh, follow-up visits, uh, follow-up diagnostics. Uh, but if it is not covered by the healthcare insurance, you know, um, then the patient has to go back to the oncologist team and then he can encounter difficulties uh, with not uh, following the, the standard way. And then um, it can be the situation that uh, pressure is put on him. Um, so therefore, it, this is a disadvantage. But uh, actually, if we look from the other side, whether the patient really need anything from the mainstream medicine, um, then actually he doesn't need anything. So if, he, if we are seeing the patient that uh, the outlook is better, or based on our previous ex experience is that outlook is better without the chemotherapy, without the radiotherapy, and if the patient is accepting this, then there is no point to go back uh, to the oncology. And uh, yeah, there's a quite a different story with the di diabetologist <laughs> because uh, they are um, sometimes uh, they are attacking us. Uh, we had a sue, um, which took a few years uh, with the Hungarian Diabetes Association. So quite diverse reactions. Yeah, I'm just, uh, so the, di the, 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 the endocrinologists or the diabetologists, you know, basically just did not feel that uh, a diet high in meat was going to be healthy for their patients. Is that, is that kind of yeah. what, yeah. And, yeah. And, what, and what has been your experience with diabetes? I, that's such a common thing. I mean, I, you, know, you know, particularly where, where I'm at in the U.S., we have so many people that are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And, you know, again, I'm seeing just very good results, you know, with people normalizing their blood glucose or insulin sensitivities improving. Is that, is that something similar to what you're seeing out there in, in hunger with your diabetic patients? So um, this is not an issue. So there, there is no, um, no negativities associated with the increased load of protein. Uh, so it, it is actually... Um, <clears throat> It, it is actually not true what the diabetologists are, are stating, and they also do not have um, support for these claims. So <clears throat> they, they are saying that uh, 
eating that much protein is uh, damaging the kidney, uh, but it is actually not the case. And actually what we see is that uh, the kidney parameters are increasing, usually increasing by decreasing the carbohydrate intake. Yeah, I've seen that too on a number of occasions. People see their, their glomerular filtration rate improves. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, they'll, we'll see, we'll still see elevated BUN and creatinine, but I think that's just due to protein, but it's not actually damaging the kidneys from, from what I've seen. We've had a number of, a number of people on the show, uh, Professor Stuart Phillips, who's one of the leading experts in protein metabolism. We've had Jason Fung, a nephrologist. All of them say protein is not a problem for kidneys. Can you talk a little bit about how you might uh, adjust the diet for different sorts of diseases? Do you treat people with uh, Crohn's different from, from rheumatoid arthritis, different from you know, diabetes or just obesity? How, how would you adjust those things you know, within a diet? Actually, there is no need for adjusting the diet for certain diseases because this is a diet. This is uh, um, resulting in a recovery, not because of this is a specific diet, but because this is the ideal diet uh, for everybody uh, with any disease. So there is no need to individualize the diet. There is no need to change the ratios or or anything. So there is no need uh, for a specific, um, let's say, endometriosis diet, which is very fashionable, or um, I don't know, so insulin resistance diet and, and things like this. These, these are just um, unscientific concepts. Uh, we are the same species and we, we need the same diet, whether we are diseased or healthy. Along, along those same lines, uh, I want to kind of, you addressed it a little bit there, and, but then I do want to revisit this idea of protein fat ratios. And you mentioned that two to one fat to protein ratio is kind of what you're targeting. And, uh, you know, so like 18 calorie to four calorie ratio. Do you see that kind of being just a linear, like projection for someone who maybe is taking on an increased energetic lifestyle. So like someone who's burning a lot more calories than your average individual, do you still stick to the two to one and just kind of climb up the amount they're eating? Or is there an adjustment to kind of skew that ratio even further along the fat line since they're just burning more energy and don't necessarily need that much more protein? Uh, in the first step, you should be increasing the overall amount what you're eating without changing the ratios. And there are um, certain fine-tuning steps if we are speaking of elite athletes, for example, for performance increase. But in the first step, there is no need to change the ratio, just to keep the same ratio and increase the amount if there is a bigger calorie need. Okay. Um, and then kind of along those same lines, do you, if you have a, a, a patient that's coming to you and, and they're, they're not coming with a disease, so to speak, but they are just looking to lose body fat. Is there any type of protein leverage going on in that situation if you're not as concerned about some of the, the disease management stuff or is that still a strict two to one ratio? Um, the ratio is the same and, and you will be able to maintain uh, muscle mass by the same ratio. Shufi, how many patients have you guys treated over the years with this diet? And uh, what have you found to be the adherence rate 
And what kind of troubles have patients had with, 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 with the diet? Mm, several thousand of patients, um, including trouble me and uh, one or two other physicians like Andrea Dabuti, who is another colleague of us. And uh, the, uh, the problems of the patients are um, um, country dependent. So for example, in Hungary, uh, uh, we are receiving attacks uh, from the paleo society uh, in the first place. It is very difficult because the paleo diet was uh, very popular in 2000, around 2010, 11, 12. So many people are coming from the paleo community and uh, they stick to eat uh, fruits, vegetables, uh, uh, supplements are very fashionable. It is very difficult to uh, persuade uh, patients that they shouldn't be eating supplements. Uh, it is very difficult to accept uh, for them that a healthy diet will be containing all the nutrients you need. So patients uh, are tempting, always tempted to add something to the diet because it is difficult to believe that the diet is working on its own. They always want to add something, which is uh, in the end will detract them from the full benefit of the diet. How are the how are the supplements? You know, let's say someone wants to take, uh, you know, so, you know, some people are worried about. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about vitamin C deficiency because that is often um, uh, a big concern with people not eating fruits and, and vegetables. They're very concerned about vitamin C. Now, obviously, if you eat enough organ meat, you can get vitamin C. Is that where you do you feel that you you need to hit the RDA amount of vitamin C, or do you feel that the metabolism has changed? somewhat to where, you know, the, 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 the vitamin requirements are changed, you know, based on the fact you're not taking in carbohydrates anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the absolute numbers for the requirements uh, is definitely not the same as compared to a carbohydrate based diet. Because we have to take into account the interactions. And uh, for example, the, the glucose ascorbate antagonism uh, is uh, determining uh, the vitamin C uh, availability in, in our body. So if we are eating uh, organ meat, then we have, we will be ingesting much less or less vitamin C as compared to eating orange and so on, or these um, strange berries. Uh, but at the same time, that amount of vitamin C is more available to our cells because there is no need to compete uh, with the sugar, with the glucose, for absorbing, for utilizing, for excreting in, in the kidney. Shafir, talk to me a little bit about electrolytes, because a lot of people, particularly when they come from a uh, sort of a higher carbohydrate approach, uh, you know, and, they, and they've, they've suddenly, you know, they've, they've taken all that uh, carbohydrate away, they have less insulin, which, which can allow the kidney to kind of hang on to electrolytes a little better. How do you guys deal with electrolytes? Do you guys in the beginning, uh, are there people taking things like magnesium, potassium, sodium, uh, salt uh, in the diet or, or what, what do you, how do you, how do you uh, manage the electrolyte situations? Uh, we, we do not have to manage um, electrolytes specifically because everything just comes along with the diet. Uh, we have published uh, a study 
in Journal of Evolution Health two years ago, and it was about the magnesium status of 50 patients following the paleolithic ketogenic diet, and it turned out that everybody has a magnesium level in the normal range. So this was the, the main finding. And the other finding was that, that there is an inverse correlation between glucose levels and the magnesium levels. So the higher the glucose level, the, the lower the magnesium. And the, the, the clinical experience shows that there are no symptoms uh, on the PKD that are attrib attributable to magnesium or magnesium loss. So far, the patient is not eating uh, fruits or alcohol or, yeah, basically these two, because these are <clears throat> depleting the magnesium that is available. So there is a, a movement of magnesium between the intracellular and the extracellular space. And if we are eating carbohydrates, then uh, those enzymes that are involved in the metabolism of carbohydrates will be activated and all those enzymes are relying on magnesium. So if you eat magnesium, you just pull out the magnesium of this pool and this will result in a drop in magnesium. But so far you stop eating vegetables, fruits and, and specifically alcohol, uh, you will stop having these symptoms. So these symptoms are specifically tough muscles or or tingling or muscle cramps. So these are very typical for a magnesium deficiency, which is actually not a real deficiency, just a relative unavailability of magnesium. And sometimes this can be the case with eating too much protein. So this is also a complaint coming from carnivore people. Shafil, let me ask you about, uh, what about salt? Do you guys allow people to salt their food or do you, do you discourage people from salting food? How, how, do, you, how do you deal with salt? Sodium chloride. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we, we are recommending sodium chloride, <laughs> um, uh, pure sodium chloride instead of anything else. Uh, and uh, the salt uh, should be used according to taste. So I do believe that uh, there is a good regulation across cravings for salt. So yeah, there, is I, no, there is no point with uh, restricting salt. And the yeah, more I, you eat, the more salt you need. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of my experience as well. Let me ask you another thing, because I see a lot of people uh, early on that it seems to be you know, a significant percentage, maybe 25 to 30% of the people, develop loose stools you know they have almost diarrhea um, is that something you guys uh, see initially and what are your why do you think that's occurring if, if you're if you're seeing that and what are you guys doing to to mitigate that or how long does that seem to be a problem so uh, this is occurring when doing the transition uh, from a carbohydrate-based diet over the pkd this always occurs this is a <clears throat> number one transient side effect but then it goes away within a few days. And uh, this is a very frequent uh, complaint from <clears throat> carnivore people. And this is because eating too much protein. And, and so far, patient is eating too much protein will have a loose stool. This is an indication of eating too much protein. This is a feedback. So just uh, adjusting for the ratio itself and not overeat according even according even to the right ratios 
So get back to the normal ratio, the normal amount will solve this problem. And then <laughs> they have the other problem, which is actually not a problem, but a normal phenomenon is that they will have a stool which is much less and much less frequent. And, and some patients regard it as a constipation uh, and, and um, found very worrying, but it is not worrying, it is just a normal stool frequency. So some patients only have a stool once in a week or things like this. So quite different from Western type eaters. Yeah, you know, it makes it makes a lot of sense when you explain the whole process, because when you think about what Sean mentioned earlier and in the in the episode was that like, you know, you go and you get a fatty cut of meat here in the United States, you're probably looking at like a 70%, 30% fat to protein ratio. And, you know, a lot of people are getting leaner cuts than that. So I think most folks who are going to kind of just say, hey, I want to give this carnivore thing a go. They're probably going to go to the grocery store and just buy a bunch of meat and not pay too close attention to those ratios and then find themselves getting in those very high ranges of protein. So for someone like that, if they do notice, okay, I'm having some issues with loose stool and I'm going on like two, three weeks of this, is their best bet just to maybe get some like beef tallow or duck fat or something like that and lower the amount of meat they're eating and put that sort of thing on top of it? Yes, exactly. And, and this will uh, have for sure. So it, it is very simple. Uh, the diarrhea is always an indication of overeating protein, and that's it. Yeah, interesting. That's 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 good insight. What? Um, so let's just let's just talk about common criticisms. You know, we hear that. Uh, but uh, this stuff, and especially nitrate, uh, is carcinogenic because in the intestine it is converted into nitrosamine, which is a carcinogenic agent. And of course, if you are eating nitrite, nitrate, you can have many additional symptoms like headache, heart palpitations, for example, sweating. And there are many other additives. So if, if you look up a, a label of a, of a sausage, you can find several lines uh, just listing the uh, added components. And in a sausage, there should be no more than four components. And this is meat, fat, salt, and a spice, and nothing else is needed to produce a sausage. That, that's really interesting because the counter here in the United States to the whole nitrate, uh, nitrite stuff has always been, well, there's vegetables with much higher concentrates of nitrate in it than what you're going to get in preserved meats. So mm -hmm. I guess for for your specific protocol, though, you would just say, well, you shouldn't be eating those either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there is no reason to eat vegetables and no reason to eat meats that are containing nitrates, nitrates. Yes, and of course, those vegetables can also induce the same symptoms like the nitrate-containing meat. It is just not uh, recognized by, by laymans. So, Fear, what do you think about things like rice? Like, you know, people will point to the, you know, Asian populations, you know, Japanese, they've eaten a lot of rice and they've been healthy. And how does that seem to affect our, our intestinal permeability? I mean, there's a lot of people like in the athletic world that, you know, I'm, I'm aware of some people that will use a meat-based diet and then they'll add a, th a few, few carbohydrates uh, like rice in there. What, is, what has been your experience with that? Or does anybody use that that you guys are aware of? Mm -hmm. So, um, 
the rice is actually containing uh, lectins <laughs> that are the number one agents in uh, producing intestinal permeability. Um, actually, the, the lectin of the rice is a very aggressive agent inducing. So it's not just an average one, it is a very aggressive agent inducing intestinal permeability. And the lectin of the rice is put in on purpose into medicines, certain medicines and pills to elevate the bioavailability of the active compound within the same pill. So uh, the, the medical industry is using the rice lectin to induce intestinal permeability. So it, it is not at all good or recommendable. And of course, when we are speaking of healthy population, it is just something very relative, relatively speaking, because they are also representing a Western-type uh, community or, or population with quite a different um, disease rates as compared to hunter-gatherers, for example. And they also have been always, the, the Japanese have always been limiting the amount of what they have been eating. So they have never been eating as much as in America or in Western-type countries. Are you seeing any problems with, I mean, because one of the things people look at is something like a ferritin level, you know, which, which mm -hmm. can often be associated with inflammation or metabolic syndrome. Have you found that uh, eating a meat-based diet negatively impacts markers of iron storage? And, and do you have patients that have things like hemochromatosis that, 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 that are on this diet? Um, so actually the number one feedback uh, from the iron level and uh, stores is the, the iron, the hemoglobin, and the hematocrit. And these three uh, together will give uh, a quite good feedback on, on, the, on the iron status and, and nothing else is needed because it just can be misleading. So it is, we do not routinely look at the uh, transferring level because it doesn't say anything about the, the health status of the patient. It can be just a misleading information. So you can have a high level and a lower level of transferrin without affecting the iron level itself. And, and the iron level itself is what counts. So what you're saying is you look at a, you basically look at a, a CBC or a hemoglobin hematocrit, and that's how you determine if, if, if the iron is being utilized or, you know, not is, is adequate more than anything. Yes, yeah, so in this regard, we are following the standard medicine because <laughs> so uh, the diagnostics is something that you can rely on from the standard medicine. And, and they also do not uh, put too much, too much emphasis on the transferring level. So it is just coming from, um, from somewhere the alternative health world to put too much emphasis on the transferring. Because if we are interested in the inflammation, then we will have a good feedback from specific inflammation markers like CRP, ESR, fibrinogen, and there are two more deep inflammation marker. But the ferritin is not a reliable indicator either of the inflammation, so it is just something useless. What do you, what do you, uh, one of the concerns with, with a, a meat-based diet is it might be particularly low in, in something like folate. Are you seeing any problems with folate deficiency, macro, macrocytic anemia, or clinically relevant 
folate deficiencies and how, how if so how how is that managed yes uh, the, the folate deficiency is uh, is an indication that the patient is not eating uh, organ meat or enough organ meat so we frequently uh, come across uh, blood with blood works uh, having everything in the right range or as expected and still having low vitamin D and the folate level. And, and this is because what I have uh, said you before, the vitamins and the nutrients are primarily coming from the organ meat. And uh, it is just a feedback that there is not enough vitamin. And then if this is the case, then on the long term, this can elevate inflammation and, and prevent recovery from a disease. Shofia, many people, at least where I live, they're, they're not fond of organ meats. They, they find them that they, you know, it's not part of the culture. They, they don't like the taste of them for whatever reason. Do you find that, that, that things like eggs or shellfish can make a, a, a acceptable substitute for that, for those people that don't particularly enjoy them? <laughs> no, not exactly. Uh, it is for sure that the eggs is... is containing much less nutrient uh, than the organ meat and the shellfish some shellfish shellfish may be high in certain nutrients but not all the nutrients uh, we need so it, it is not a good substitute I, I i think it is not just the matter of taste uh, but the thing they just do not know know organ meats or how to prepare so you may know that we are running a, a very small clinic in Hungary uh, as, an, as an inpatient setting, and uh, we regularly include different types of organ meats, and, and the patients even do not recognize that it is something else. <laughs> they just like it. And, and once you relearn uh, like, liking organ meats, later on you will not have problems with it. So. I think that the brain is is the best food in the, one of the best food in the world. Shafir, what what are your thoughts on cooking temperatures? Some people like to eat their diet raw. Are you are do you have any thoughts regarding raw meat versus cooked meat, and then you know cooked rare versus cooked well done? Does that does that impact uh, the the efficacy of the diet in any way? There is a, a small difference in the in the nutrients. So most nutrients uh, within the organ meat and the meat are heat stable. So there is not much loss uh, with increasing the temperature, but there is some. <laughs> so uh, in general terms, yes, of course, it is healthier to eat something with rare uh, as compared to cooked or fried. <clears throat> and most people and, and some people are, are sensitive to cooked meat uh, or are sensitive to cooked meat in, in while they are doing the transition at the very beginning. <clears throat> but later on, there is not a big difference between eating raw or cooked. What do you guys have? Uh, is there something, I mean, is, what, what do you guys have planned for the clinic? Any, any sort, of, sort of changes you guys have coming up as far as uh, expansion or different areas you want to look into or do you have any long-term plans for this clinic that we need to know about? Uh, no, we currently we concentrate uh, to maintain this uh, in Hungary and maybe increase uh, it in, in size. But it is limited by our own capacity, you know. 
So we are operating it in, in a small scale currently. And, and, and those patients who really need it uh, come over from anywhere from the world. So we already did have quite a few patients from the US. So it, it is not really an, an obstacle. Yeah, I think I think I, I, I've certainly talked to you, talked about you guys enough for hopefully we've gotten you some business, uh, you know, from from this side here. And we certainly appreciate everything you guys are doing to advance the knowledge out there. Um, are you? I know that some of your patients are actually physicians, other physicians throughout Hungary. Is that is that what I was I hearing that correctly? Yes, we we do have physician patients as well. And and their thoughts are they sort of surprised how, how it works or does it change their practice at all? Uh, they are surprised uh, at first um, and uh, they experience themselves uh, that it is beneficial but uh, then they're, they're, they cannot do the next step. So, so far uh, we didn't encounter many physicians who wanted to use this diet in his or own practice so they are just doing it for themselves and at the same time recommending the standard methods to their patients so there is there, there is no real breakthrough and and uh, so yeah that's a problem and i think it is an ethical problem as well if if i learn a method about a method which is effective how could i go on with the standard method that will not affect a patient's condition or will not cure. So, but they are also facing uh, problems. Uh, it is a, a financial problem as well, because so far you are not in the, in the standard and mainstream medical system anymore. You will be encountering financial difficulties. And also this is a tracking attack from your colleagues kind of ostracized uh, by your colleagues, which, which uh, nobody uh, would choose as an option. So this is how it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of how that works, <laughs> believe me. Um, well, I certainly uh, salute you guys for what you're doing. I mean, you know, you're obviously uh, going against the grain. Uh, but ultimately, and I think the, the people out there, the patients in particular, appreciate results. And I think that is hopefully in the end, that's what's going to carry the day. I, I am, you know, I think as a community, we're getting a little bigger and maybe getting more information and hopefully via things like social media, we, we can get the message out there, even though the mainstream may not uh, be set up for it. Because again, it is at the end of the day, unfortunately, medicine has become a business and, you know, you've got to pay the light bill. You got to pay your employees. You've got to make money. And the way you make money right now is to prescribe prescription drugs yeah. and do procedures. And, um, you know, it's, yes. It's, and, and this is another word than it was 30 years ago. Uh, where like, uh, I, I do not know whether you know the name, Walter Voiklin, he was the number one, uh, proposing the meat fat based diet and, and he wrote a book. Yeah, he and wrote the Stone Age diet back in the 1970s. Yes, yeah, right, sure. He was a gastroenterologist. Yes, <laughs> and he used it. Actually, he was the only one who used this in his own practice uh, with patients. And I think he remained or should have remained quite isolated. 
And, yeah. and his book has uh, been rediscovered only 20, 30 years later. So there was a gap. But now this is another, other age. Yeah, there was, there was a guy named Blake Donaldson before him who wrote Strong Medicine in the 19, 1961, I think it came out. A similar diet. And then, of course, we had uh, Dr. Salisbury back in the 1800s with a, with a diet yeah. very similar. And so this is not like it's new knowledge, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's just tough to get it out there because people, they, they really want to eat their, their carbohydrate-based food. It's really, uh, it's very enjoyable. You know, and that's that's a tough yeah. thing to, to try to get get against. Well, Sophia, it's a pleasure talking to you. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to participate in your clinic? If they want to, if they want to get help, they can find us on uh, web, uh, on through our web page, periomedicina.com, or through my Facebook page, or I'm on Twitter, Instagram. So any channel, they will be able to find us. Sophia, I just have one more quick question for you, if you don't mind. Um, it, it, it's an interesting topic that's come up a couple times on our, on our podcast, and that is with like fermented vegetables or fermented foods. And one of the most, more interesting, kind of intriguing <laughs> things I've heard about that, and I think it actually came out of the um, Weston A. Price Foundation stuff, was that like the argument for eating some fermented foods was that in, even in nature, if you, if you, you kill an animal and you use the whole thing, you're going to end up with some fermented vegetables. If you eat the, 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 the partially digested, you know, fermented vegetable matter that that animal had been eating. Is this something that you've looked into or think there's any like validity to, or is it just uh, kind of reaching at that point? So I do not think that there is any benefit uh, associated with uh, the consumption of any plant material uh, be it fermented or non-fermented, so there is no uh, no added benefit as compared to animal meat, fat, and organ meat. So then there is no point to eat fermented vegetable. It is another question that fermented vegetable may be more tolerable, tolerable as compared to raw vegetable, and also in in terms of the lectins, which can become less aggressive with through the process of fermenting. So the best, what can be said that it is less aggressive as compared to raw vegetables, but it is for sure not better than animal meat uh, fat-based diet. And actually, I do not think that uh, hunter-gatherers did eat the content of the intestine. I've I, I read many um, records from anthropologists from the Inuit and so on, and and the intestine was just given to the dogs, mm. or 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 wash out the inside and use the intestine for other reasons, like preparing sausage or things like sausage, ancestral sausage. But I, I have never came across um, records of eating the content of the intestine. Excellent. Thank you for that response. That was something that I thought was kind of an, an intriguing thought, but wasn't sure if there was anything valid behind it or not. Um, but yeah, we will definitely link your social media and website stuff to the show notes so our listeners can click to it and find it. Uh, and if there's anything else you'd like us to share, feel free to send it over and we can attach it to that as well. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, let me ask just one, one last question. Um, sorry. 
Um, we see an increasing popularity in plant-based or vegan-based diets. Is that something you're seeing in Hungary? And are you seeing uh, an increase in some of these autoimmune conditions or, or in your patients that are, that are former vegetarians or vegans? Is that something you guys see with any regularity? Yes, we definitely see an association with new onset autoimmune diseases and uh, being vegetarian in the in the background. This is what for sure we can see, and and um, decreasing age uh, for the onset of the disease. So earlier we had Crohn's disease, like you know, my my parents are physicians, and they did see Crohn's. Uh, disease as an adult disease and now we see a tendency of uh, trending down in age so we already had a Crohn's disease patient of four years old and, uh, oh, that's that's amazing I didn't know four years old that's amazing let me uh, one other point because you know we've been eating you know people humans have been eating vegetables for several thousand years at least you know we, we uh, many people don't know a lot of them were, were invented but more recently, it's something like vegetable oils, soybean oil, canola oil, uh, those corn oil. Uh, is that particularly is that a particularly problematic food source for even more so in causing these issues? Yes, exactly. Uh, they are increasing intestinal permeability, increasing elevation uh, elevations in inflammation, uh, deteriorating the condition of autoimmune patients like Crohn's patients. So. Definitely, they are unhealthy, even if they are labeled as healthy, like the coconut oil or the olive oil. <laughs> At the end, they are the same category. Yeah, that's interesting you brought that up because you find that coconut oil and extra virgin olive oil also seem to cause these similar issues with intestinal permeability. Is that, is that, do you have direct evidence to show that? Uh, we did see um, a delayed improvement in symptoms when a patient has been eating vegetable oils like coconut oil. And um, yeah. Thank you. That's a that's a very uh, interesting statement. All right, Shofia, we've got to do another podcast with Mr. <laughs> Alan Savory. I don't know if you know him. He's he's a he's a he's a uh, regenerative agriculture guy. He's, he's kind of an interesting fellow. But uh, I look forward to meeting you in person uh, in a couple of weeks here in Boulder. Yeah, I do look it forward. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Zach, anything else? That should do it. Thank you so much for coming on. It was very gracious of you to spend some time with us today, and uh, we will let you know when this one is up. Okay, thank you. It was my pleasure. To have have a good day. Enjoy, enjoy your day. Say hi to Chaba. <laughs> I will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.